This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about structured settlements from Ringler Associates, the first name in structured settlements, helping injured people and their families since 1975. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by Allstate, American General, John Hancock, Liberty Mutual, MetLife, Mutual of Omaha, New York Life, Pacific Life, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, hello and welcome to Ringler Radio, everyone. I'm Larry Cohen, the head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and we're certainly glad you could join us again today. Well, a federal jury in Lafayette, Louisiana, recently ordered Takeda Pharmaceutical Company, based in Osaka, Japan, and its partner, Eli Lilly, based in Indianapolis, to pay a combined $9 billion in punitive damages. The jury determined that the drug makers had hidden certain cancer risks associated with their Actos diabetes medicine uh, and kept that from the public. Also recently, a Texas jury ordered Johnson & Johnson to pay $1.2 million to a woman injured by transvaginal mesh, complications stemming from transvaginal mesh, and subsequent lawsuits against the manufacturers is another instance of how defective products can impact so many of us. Well, today on Ringle Radio, we'll spotlight litigation surrounding Actos and transvaginal mesh and uh, take a look at the controversial painkiller Zohydro, which is causing a stir across the nation. And to help us with all of that, we have two special guests, attorneys Andy Birchfield and Lee O'Dell from the Beasley Allen Law Firm in Montgomery, Alabama. Andy manages the firm's mass tort section which is recognized as a national leader in pharmaceutical litigation. And the section successfully resolved claims for thousands of clients in the uh, Vioxx, Bextra, Celebrex, Baycol, uh, Ephedra. Andy, you've done a lot of these cases. Uh, it's, it's very impressive. And uh, Leo Dell practices in the mass tort section as well. Currently, her focus is on product liability actions involving transvaginal mesh and Gardasil. Well, uh, both of you, welcome to Ringle Radio, and uh, you both have pretty big jobs uh, all, all along the way. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you, Larry. It's good to be with you this morning. Andy, let's start with you and uh, the Actos litigation. Uh, you were appointed to the plaintiff steering committee by uh, District Judge Rebecca Doherty, who's in charge of the Actos multi-district litigation. Tell us about your role in the consolidation of the lawsuits. Larry, when... When there are multiple lawsuits filed across the country involving any uh, one particular product, the courts will often consolidate those uh, for efficiency purposes to to one court, and that's what has taken place here. Uh, Judge Darty is responsible for uh, leading that litigation uh, across the country, and there there are literally thousands of lawsuits that are uh, pending in her court, and she appoints a committee. A, uh, a plaintiff steering committee to be in charge of handling the discovery and uh, and prosecuting those cases you know through trial and and I was uh, fortunate to be appointed as a member of that of that committee and uh, and so that's what we have been doing for the last couple of years is uh, leading the litigation conducting the discovery and moving forward with those cases well that's interesting. Give us an overview of uh, you know Actos uh, and the impact it's had on your clients. Give us give our audience a, a, a little bit of a flavor of what that's all about. Uh, Actos is a is a 
prescription medication for type 2 diabetes or uh, adult onset diabetes. Uh, it is it's one of literally dozens of uh, pr- uh, prescription medicines that are used to, to treat diabetes. Uh, but Actos is, is one of three of a particular class called TZDs. And this is a, uh, a troubled class of, of drugs uh, used to treat diabetes. Resolin uh, was, uh, was the first, and it was pulled off the market after causing uh, liver failure and death as a result of liver failure. Uh, Avandia is a, another member of the TZD class, and its use has been uh, severely restricted uh, once it was connected with problems with heart attacks and strokes. And then you have Actos, uh, which is still on the market, uh, but we we see that there is a, a strong connection between the use of Actos and, and bladder cancer. Well, in fact, uh, the federal jury I mentioned earlier uh, ordered uh, Takeda and Eli Lilly to pay $9 billion for this Actos cancer risk. Uh, tell us about that. Tell us about that nine billion dollar you know result there. Well, uh, the nine billion uh, number that is a that's a shocking number. Yeah, but it is a number that reflects the the shocking conduct of of Takeda and Eli Lilly in in hiding the risk of um, of bladder cancer. Bladder cancer is a a very serious problem, and and typically in in this type of litigation, uh, you know there. There's some key questions that you want to know. You know, what did the company know about the problem, and when did they know it? And and in this case, you know, it was not a situation where the company just learned about this this problem or safety problems with Actos once it was on the market. It, it certainly grew in its understanding of the problem, but it was aware of the safety problems with Actos long before the drug even went on the market. Uh, and so I think it was the, the conduct of these companies in hiding this serious risk, uh, combined with the uh, with the evidence about the amount of money that the companies made from these drugs by hiding the risk, uh, that resulted in in the nine billion dollar verdict. Well, you know, uh, Andy, you you as lawyers have seen this picture before. I mean, it, it seems that uh, every time uh, one of these drugs comes into question, there's there's this issue of knowledge earlier and and somewhat of a hiding of the facts, and then you guys expose that, and and big dollars get exchanged. Uh, you you would think that those companies would have learned by now uh, how to react and act in situations like that. But what do you think the impact is going to be? of um, the, the degree of magnitude of that award. What, what's it going to, how's it going to impact future you know, litigation in your view? Well, I, I hope that it will send a, a message to drug companies to be very, very careful in, in how they respond to safety signals and not to ignore those safety signals, but to act responsibly. Uh, I mean, this, uh, the nine billion dollar verdict that's the amount that the the jury determined was appropriate but uh, but there will be post trial motions the the judge will uh, will consider uh, additional evidence decide whether or not that verdict should be reduced or or not uh, and then it will will proceed through the appellate process uh, most likely as well uh, but 
but still, you know, that is a that's a strong message uh, from a, a very conservative jury uh, in Louisiana uh, that that this conduct uh, you know should not be tolerated. Well, you know, you're right. I mean, these these cases do, uh, even when the uh, the awards come out, take a natural course on appeal, et cetera. And there, there, there could be some changes in that. But that was a rather stunning amount, and uh, I think uh, it's it did send a message. How long typically does somebody have to be on that drug before they would potentially expect some of these effects? I know you mentioned it's somewhat variable, but uh, give give us some uh, ballpark figures if you could. Well, that is uh, that's a, a question that is um, that's really undecided, unknown. Mm-hmm. You know, at this point, the FDA has uh, advised you know, that there's an increased risk uh, after taking uh, Actos for for one year. However, the um, I mean, what the you know, what the scientists, the experts that have uh, looked at this drug, what they uh, what they tell us is that when that Actos is not only an initiator of bladder cancer. That means that it actually you know, can, can start uh, the, the bladder cancer, but it's also what's called a promoter. Mm. And so that is if you have, if you have these, these cells that are problem cells to begin with, then Actos can act as a, it's like pouring fuel on the fire. Mm-hmm. The fire's already there, but Actos can, act, can actually fuel uh, the development of bladder cancer. So someone who has been using Actos for even a, a very short period of time uh, and has developed bladder cancer, uh, you know, that warrants a, a very close look, and uh, and it's certainly something that we would uh, you know, we would we would give careful consideration. We'd look at a number of factors, but we I would not b- draw a bright line and say gotcha. you know, if you've only been taking it for three months. Uh, we would not pursue that case, uh, you know, even the short-term users, because Actos is uh, such a strong promoter mm-hmm. of bladder cancer, uh, I think that we can establish in many cases that even with short-term use that, uh, that Actos played a substantial role in the development of bladder cancer. Well, that, that's very helpful advice to, to the audience out there, and uh, thank you very much for that, Andy. Now, now we're going to switch topics here and, uh, and uh, talk to your colleague, Lee O'Dell. Lee, back in 2012, we had you on Ringler Radio to discuss complications from transvaginal mesh. So give us an update on transvaginal mesh and the impact it's having on women across the country. Thanks, Larry. It's good to be with you and, and just bring an update for those that, that maybe don't think about transvaginal mesh very much, and I, I confess I do all the time, every day, but um, there are actually two types of products that um, are um, made of mesh and that are placed through um, through an incision in the vaginal wall, and one is used to treat uh, pelvic organ prolapse when organs um, begin to move out of a out of place in the female pelvis, and then the the second type of product is used to treat uh, stress urinary incontinence, and those are often called bladder slings. And right before we talked last time, um, Larry, that a lot of the pelvic organ prolapse products had been withdrawn from the market. And those um, products remain off the market um, for the most part at this time. Um, this, the products used to treat stress urinary incontinence 
remain on the market in large measure, and they're still being implanted, unfortunately, in many women today. Oh, millions of women have received um, uh, transvaginal mesh for the treatment of these conditions, and um, many of them, um, even today, are experiencing erosion of the mesh through the vaginal mucosa. They're experiencing chronic pelvic pain, infection, um, pain with intercourse, a lot of of challenging issues that are are very um, uh, are very um, intimate and very difficult to talk about for many women, and yeah. also very difficult to treat. And yeah. so, um, we we um, it's just it's a public health. Uh, problem of really enormous um, proportions, and um, one of the things that we're finding is, is because it's difficult to treat, um, that um, a lot of women are are suffering really with a not without a lot of um, a real hope of having uh, change, um, you know, of their condition. Yeah, and I, and I think you raise a good point. I think the personal nature of this uh, is. Probably difficult for some uh, some women to to get into and discuss, and uh, maybe causes a little bit more of a of a problem in this area than than would normally be the case. Right. So let's That's take right. a look at uh, some of the litigation. Recently, uh, Texas jury ordered Johnson and Johnson to pay one point two million to a woman involved uh, and injured by transvaginal mesh. Uh, talk to us about the case and what this verdict signifies. Well, the the plaintiff in that case, a, a woman by the name of Miss Batiste, was. Um, implanted with a bladder sling that was manufactured by Johnson and Johnson, and it's, it's a transobturator sling. And this was a very significant um, uh, case because it was the first case in the country that's gone to trial and reached the jury that involved a bladder sling. There have been some other cases that tried previously that involved the pelvic organ prolapse products, but this is the first bladder sling case. And Miss Batiste had um, chronic pain. She had pain with intercourse. She had erosion of the mesh um, through her vaginal uh, wall and uh, had experienced some significant problems. And when the jury heard the evidence of, one, the fact that the product um, degrades in the body or it breaks down mm -hmm. and that uh, Johnson & Johnson was aware of that but really did not warn about that condition, when they um, learned the information regarding uh, the nerve injuries caused by uh, the mesh, uh, they found that the product was defective. And so we felt that that was extremely significant that a jury, after hearing all the evidence that has been gathered very ably by um, many lawyers in the uh, litigation, particularly on the plaintiff steering committee for uh, the transvaginal mesh uh, litigation, we felt like that was a tremendously positive sign because it shows that these cases can be tried uh, effectively, that the, that the evidence is, um, is very substantial. And I think for d defendants, manufacturers like Johnson & Johnson who had put this, these products on the market, uh, they really felt that they may lose the pelvic organ prolapse cases but may have more success with the bladder sling cases. But this is an indication that that's not, um, not the case. Well, it's clear that uh, cases of all the transvaginal mesh issues uh, certainly resonate with juries. I mean, I think they can relate to some of the issues that uh, are being spoken about, and so I, I believe that's also part of the mix. So here we had the bladder sling uh, issue uh, litigated. Uh, what about some of the other complications of transvaginal mesh uh, and 
some of its long-term effects. Is there any uh, real-life example you can tell us about that would uh, let the audience here know about uh, how that all comes down? There's so many, but one of the the um, cases that comes to mind is a as a woman that I represent. She was uh, 42 when she um, had some slight problems with stress urinary incontinence, and you know, Larry, we have to remember that these problems are not. Um, they're not life-threatening. You're never, you know, we we don't want to deal with stress urinary incontinence, but but it's it is a it's a matter of quality of life. It's yes. not a matter of 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 something that will threaten your life, like bladder cancer, for example, that Andy was talking about. I mean, it's it's really a very different condition. So this this young woman, um, beautiful, vibrant, healthy, exercising. Um, just had had finished her family, maybe a little, um, having a little difficulty with stress urinary incontinence, has a very brief conversation with her doctor, during which time he tells her that there's this very simple procedure that c- can be done and it will, you know, correct all of her problems. And, and what she didn't know is that there was the risk of erosion, there was a risk of chronic pain, and uh, and when I say chronic pain, chronic pelvic pain meaning every time you move, you have um, pelvic pain. Mm. If you move certain ways, you have piercing pain. And for a vibrant woman with, um, you know, with a healthy marriage, you have pain that inter- that impacts you during intercourse and and making it almost impossible to to experience that part of life. And so for this woman now, she's been through two surgeries. She still has nerve injury. Those nerves will probably never regenerate completely. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, at best you hope for some kind of equilibrium in the future, but, but what she's experienced is six years of to, to date, six years of incredible just discomfort, pain, and just life altering problems. Mm -hmm. And, and and she's not alone and she's very she's just such a young woman and so we see that in clients you know in their 30s 40s 50s 60s and and you know for a client that's in their 70s but is vibrant and healthy and think they're going to have what has been presented to them um as a very minor procedure and then experience these conditions for you know, clients that I represent and many other ladies I've talked to, they would say, had I known, I would never have said yes to that. Well, the good news is they have, uh, you know, some lawyers like yourself that they are going to help pursue uh, whatever, you know, their rights are and uh, hopefully get their lives back together in, in some yeah. some fashion. You know, you've mentioned, uh, Lee, that these devices were, were never really studied or tested on women prior to being placed on the market. Uh, boy, what needs to change in that arena? For all permanent implants like transvaginal mesh, um, I believe they should be required by the FDA to go through the what's called the pre-market approval process, and they must be required to be tested in, in actual patients prior to being placed on the market. For these transvaginal mesh devices, they were never put in a woman prior to being marketed by these companies, and and that is, it's really a travesty, and it should, should never have happened. Um, they should never have been allowed to be a, approved through the 510K process, and so I would advocate requiring clinical trials, requiring a showing in those clinical trials that there is um, benefit that outweighs the risk, and and more than that, that, that the the product that's being proposed is better 
and safer than the alternatives that are already available to women. And for transvaginal mesh, um, the safer alternative was suture-based procedures that have been used for many years, and you don't see the complications that you're seeing in transvaginal mesh. Hmm. Well, if someone out there is suffering from uh, the complications of transvaginal mesh, what, what, what would be their next steps? What would you advise? You know, if, if a woman is suffering, um, you know, from um, chronic pain, erosion, chronic infection, I, I would say, number one, um, seek out a qualified urogynecologist to uh, examine you. Um, many um, physicians are not um, really equipped to deal with some of these complications, but but most urogynecologists are. And then the second thing is is even if you've had your mesh implanted for a number of years, we've seen onset of symptoms as many as five, six, seven years after implant. So I would encourage them to call a uh, lawyer who's been uh, very involved in the litigation in the actual preparing of these cases uh, in order to uh, to explore their legal right. Well, I think at the end of the show today, we'll uh, give our folks uh, a, a phone call uh, for someone who might just do that. Well, let's take a quick break right now. And uh, in a minute, we'll come right back here on Ringle Radio with uh, attorneys Andy Birchfield and Leo Dell and talk more about these fascinating topics. We'll be right back. This is Ringler Radio from Ringler Associates, the leader in the structured settlements profession nationwide. Did you know that Ringler is involved in a third of all structured settlement cases in the country? Ringler Associates works with all the parties in a lawsuit settlement to find the best possible financial solution for the people involved. There's a Ringler Associate in all the major cities of the U.S. No one has more experience than a Ringler Associate. Check out our new website at www.ringlerassociates.com for the best information for claimants, legal professionals, and claims personnel, and to find the Ringler Associate nearest you. When it's your interest at stake in a lawsuit settlement, you want only the best financial plan. You can count on Ringler Associates to structure a customized plan that meets the needs of you and your family for the future. Visit RinglerAssociates.com to learn more. Well, welcome back to Ringler Radio. Glad you could join us. I'm your host, Larry Cohen, and I'm joined today by my special guests, attorneys Andy Birchfield and Leo Dell from the Beasley Allen Law Firm down in Montgomery, Alabama. Well, Andy, let's switch topics again and, and look take a look at the controversial painkiller Zohydro. Uh, give us some background on this uh, powerful painkiller and uh, what are some of its effects? Give, give us a little bit of a, a roadmap there. Yeah, this is a uh, this is a drug that causes great concern. Uh, it is it's pure hydrocodone, and in the past, I mean, we ha- we know of drugs like Vicodin and Lortab, you know, powerful painkillers, but they have hydrocodone mixed with uh, the the ingredient of Tylenol, acetaminophen. So you know th- they're powerful, but but their their potency is is limited in some way. This this drug is pure hydrocodone. So it's not it's not just like twice as powerful as Lortab or Vicodin. It's like five to ten times more potent, and uh, and we have seen uh, in recent times just any 
an enormous uh, spike in people becoming addicted uh, and abusing prescription painkillers. And uh, and so the approval of you know of this drug, the widespread use of this drug without any uh, abuse deterrent uh, feature factored in is is very troubling. Well, you know, uh, the interesting thing about this drug is that states are taking almost a state by state approach. Uh, to really stand up to to this issue, uh, I know the Vermont Vermont's governor has established some emergency rules. And uh, but tell us about the procedural developments in Massachusetts uh, regarding the attempted ban uh, of Zohydro by the governor. And I understand uh, there's some very recent uh, developments in that case, but it's uh, it's kind of unusual for a governor uh, of a state, uh, and I, I think we're seeing this in several states to outright try to ban a drug from being uh, marketed in the state. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah that is, uh, that's an extraordinary measure uh, that, that Governor Patrick has, uh, has taken there to, to ban uh, the use of this drug in Massachusetts. I think that you know, the, the extraordinary measure that he is taking just reflects the, the high level of concern that, uh, that people in, in position to protect the health and the welfare of, of people, of people within their state, uh, are, uh, are, are seeing with the release of this drug. I mean, we, in the past, we have seen, uh, you know, drugs, painkillers like Oxycontin that has been, that have been abused and, and through that abuse, uh, and the addiction that ensues, we've seen, you know, lives devastated. And so there is, uh, so there are extreme measures that are being taken, uh, to try to curtail the use of this drug. Well, that's that, you know, whether or not they're successful, uh, immediately, I mean, they have, that has to be a help to you in the, in the area of the litigation that you're trying to pursue here, because, uh, there's nobody out there saying, uh, you know, you're trying to stop something that's that's good for anybody. I mean, it looks like it's a real, real problem. And and apropos of that, there's a serious prescription drug problem plaguing our states uh, almost universally uh, when it comes to this painkiller addiction. It seems to be the uh, the way a lot of, uh, especially young people, are now uh, seem to be getting their uh, their kicks, so to speak. With individuals taking it, I mean, this medication for recreational use and some of them overdosing, I mean, where where does the FDA stand in that uh, arena in terms of working with the pharmaceutical companies to to try to help stop that? I mean, I know it's an endemic problem around the country, but what's your view on that? Well, the FDA, uh, the FDA has taken a, a controversial position in approving this drug. And the way the FDA works when they are considering a uh, approving a drug that can be prescribed to Americans. Uh, you know, they look at the at the safety and the efficacy of the drug, and oftentimes they involve what's called an advisory committee. They gather a group of of experts from across the country uh, with special expertise. You know, in the in the arena of this particular drug, and they uh, they have those experts consider all the evidence and and then make a. Uh, take a vote on whether the drug should be approved or not. And in this case, this, the advisory committee overwhelmingly voted that it should not be approved. But it's an advisory committee. It doesn't hold any, any authority. Uh, and the FDA, um, they went against the advice of, the, of this committee, and they approved the drug nonetheless. And the FDA's position is mm, uh, acetaminophen, which is mixed with the 
like Vicodin and Lortab, that, that can cause liver problems. And so people need an option uh, that does not include um, that does not include acetaminophen, so you don't have the the liver risk. I, I understand that, uh, but when you when we have seen the when we've seen the epidemic of abuse and of painkillers, there needs to be some measures in place to uh, to prevent the widespread abuse and the lives that are uh, devastated as a result. Well, no, no question about that. It almost it almost seems like in trying to uh, uh, affect some kind of a uh, a help to to what's currently out there, they're approving something that. Uh, adds to the issue and adds to the problem and it's mm-hmm. it's a tough it's a tough position to be in but I know that you know what it's through the scrutiny by uh, your firm and and others like yours that uh, that tries to hold these folks feet to the fire to to make sure that the public out there is protected to the best as best they can be you know what do you see as changes in coming down the road when it comes to these controversial drugs any changes that you can uh, you can see in the offing uh, either you Lee or uh, or, or Andy, about how uh, some some of these drugs can be regulated a little bit better. Larry, I'm an I'm an eternal optimist, uh, and and I, I do think that there will be changes. But based on past experience, uh, I have to say I, I'm I'm fearful that those changes will not come until until after we see the effects that it has on thousands, even tens of thousands of people. You know the uh, several decades ago, the FDA was the gold standard in the regulatory bodies across the world, mm-hmm. and the FDA was truly the watchdog. They were, uh, but now uh, we have seen since the uh, since the early '90s and the change in the way that the FDA works with the drug companies, the uh, with the Prescription Drug User Fee Act, the the drug companies now pay uh, substantial fees to the FDA for an expedited review of their drugs, and so there has uh, the FDA has become dependent uh, in in large measure on drug companies, and and so instead of being a watchdog, they're more like a partner with the drug companies, and we need to we need to change that. We need to go back uh, to the way it was when the FDA, you know truly served as the as the watchdog. There are a lot of great scientists there at the FDA and they do really good work. Uh but in but their hands are tied in, yeah. in so many respects. And we we need to address that. Yeah. Lee, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, you know, I just certainly would would agree and echo Andy's comments. And the other uh thing that I would add is that we see in the um early I guess it was um, early 90s, late 80s, when direct-to-consumer advertising started for pharmaceutical um, drugs. And if, if I would offer a comment, it would be that that has driven, not only driven sales, um, but driven um, a lot of consumers to ask for drugs. And, and, and I think their doctors, as a result of that request, have, have been prescribing them. So I would say that direct-to-consumer advertising, you know, should be 
stopped and you know and, and of course it wasn't allowed for decades yeah. and um and it and it it rightly put the discussions about drugs more in the context of doctor patient relationship um mm-hmm. and basing those discussions on scientific um scientific data as opposed to uh maybe some of the the themes that they're hearing on direct to consumer advertisements you know i think i think the power of the advertising is clearly uh, i think you hit on something there too i mean Despite all of the uh, the warnings that they babble on these on these ads, and, and the end result, it's it's the butterflies, it's those two bathtubs on the hill there with, the, you know, it's 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 it's, it's all of that 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 helps drive these sales. But Andy, I think in the when you net it all out, when you when you talked about what's what's the problem out there today, I think it it comes down like it does to many things. Follow the money, you know, where the mm-hmm. money is, that tends to. Uh, affect uh, people's decisions in a way that may not be the most prudent. Well, this has been a great discussion with both of you. Uh, I think our audience has learned a lot about all of these uh, drugs you've mentioned. Uh, Andy, if someone wanted to uh, get a hold of you, how would they do that? Well, they can call uh, our toll-free number, uh, 1-800-898-2034, or they can go to uh, the Beasley Allen website. It's just BeasleyAllen.com. And uh, and there you, know, you can get my contact information or Lee Lee's contact information as well as the uh, other areas in which our our firm is actively uh, involved in litigation. Terrific! Any special way to get a hold of you, Lee? No, the same. The same. I would just, um, yes. Okay, let me just for the audience: BeasleyAllen.com is B E A S L E Y A L L E N dot com, and uh, as you can see with uh, both Andy and Lee. Uh, you'll be well served if you uh, have any any issues around these uh, these drugs and you want to learn more about them. So with that, I want to thank you. And uh, if any of our listeners out there want to uh, find any Ringler Associate, they can do that on ringlerassociates.com. We're all listed there. <clears throat> and if you're a first-time listener and you want to uh, listen to more Ringler Radio shows, you can find all of the Ringler Radio shows. They're all archived on ringlerassociates.com, ringlerradio.com, or LegalTalkNetwork.com, or you can even go to iTunes, where they're all uh, there for your uh, for your taking, and you can download them to your iPod or your iPad and walk around the park and listen to uh, Andy and Lee talk about uh, these drug issues. So with that, I'd say, uh, again, thank you, Andy and Lee, for joining me. Thank you, Larry. It's been a yeah, great talk you. with you this morning. Terrific. Yes. Thank both of you. And uh, to the rest of you out there, go have a great, great day. Bye-bye. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. With over a million listeners, Ringler Associates, the first name in structured settlements. Visit ringlerassociates.com today. Today.